quiz. Something of a survey, and we did it at the first service. I did it off the cuff, and I was I was surprised, actually. I, I thought the answer would be one thing, and we'd just move on. The answer turned out to be another thing, and I had to spend some time on it. So we maybe are going to spend a little time on it here. If you were at the first service, no cheating. Answer as you did in the first service. But I'm going to add some stuff to make it easier. We hopefully all get to make it like easy right away. How many of you have heard of the small catechism? Hands. It really should be everybody in this space by, by and large, right? Okay. So how many of you know, this, this maybe should be almost nobody. How many of you know that the actual catechism was not written by Dr. Luther? Yeah. So that the actual catechism is just the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, nothing else. And the rest of it, what you think of as the small catechism, is Dr. Luther's explanation of the small catechism. It's a fine thing, but the distinction is important. Okay, so how many of you know that when Dr. Luther explained the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer, three things, he added three more things and called them the six chief parts? Eh, kind of yeah, not as many here again. Okay, so that would be baptism, the office of the ministry, and the Lord's Supper. He has sections on that in the catechism. How many of you know that there's two more sections, sorry, three more sections after that? Oh, very, very few here. Okay, so, so how many of you know that one of those sections is a section on daily prayers? Oh, you all know that part. You didn't know it was there, but you know what it is? That's pretty good. Okay, well, how many of you know there's a section on Christian questions and answers for those who wish to go to the sacrament? There should be a few more because we use that for confirmation here. Okay, then finally, and this is the one that, like, we'll see. How many of you have heard of the table of duties? About half of you, about half of you. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to see it right now. Did, well, this will be the last question, I suppose. How many of you know that the small catechisms in the hymnal? Oh, good number of you. Fine. So do, can you find it without me telling you the page number? Yeah. Page 321 is where it's going to start. And this is, I mean, this is just, you know, education here. I'm just trying to let you see it, okay? So on page 321, you have not only the Ten Commandments, but you got Luther's questions and answers. And the very famous question, was ist das? That's the German. But you know what that means, right? What does this mean? On page 322, you see that the Apostles' Creed gets picked up there, right? Page 323, he starts talking about the Lord's Prayer. That goes for quite a while. Page 325, the Sacrament of Holy Baptism, four questions on that. Uh, page 326, I always call it the Office of the Keys or the Office of the Ministry, but the Catechism proper calls it Confession. It really is also about absolution. And then you have the sacrament of the altar, the final of those six chief parts. And just notice for the moment how underneath the sacrament of the altar, it says what it said under every title so far, as the head of the family should teach in a simple way to his household. That'll have some connection point to Colossians chapter three and four here this morning. But see, now notice section two on page 327, daily prayers. You've, you've heard of Luther's morning prayer and his evening prayer. We use them here, but they're, they're from the catechism. 
You also have the way to ask a blessing and return thanks at dinner. The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their meat in due season, right? It's, it's that wonderful prayer. That's there in your small catechism. Then you have section three, page 328. There's the table of duties. And, you know, I like our hymnal a lot, but I got a beef with them that they didn't put the actual text in here. I, I understand we wanted to make room for all the hymns we got. And they're wonderful hymns. Like it might have taken two more pages to do this, but in your small catechism that you get when you get confirmed, it has the text printed out so you don't have to go look them up. But, but you can go look them up. Here's the thing. The table of duties, what is it? It is an extended look at the fourth commandment. The fourth commandments, honor your father and your mother. That is, it is submit to good authorities where they exist in the world. Where God has put you under authority, seek to follow that order. But not all of us stand in the same place in this life. So we're not all submitting to the same order all the time, or certainly not all submitting to each other. Can you imagine how weird that would be to try to have two people submit to each other? I once had a friend who had a puppy. It wasn't a puppy. He was a dog. And this dog, I guess, had been a little bit... uh, hurt as a, as, a, as a stray. And so they'd adopt him and he was a very happy dog now, but he had this problem from when he was a stray and it was that he had to submit to you. And so if you would stand over him, he would, he would just sit immediately. If you would get down to eye level, he would duck. If you would get down on the ground with him, he would duck to the ground. If you'd lie down on the ground with him, he'd turn upside down to look at you. Like he could not not submit. All right. And that's kind of an important point. In every relationship, there's going to be a stronger and a weaker. That's not bad. What's bad is not knowing which one you are in God's sight, like what he made you to be. And what's bad is rebelling against what is good order. The table of duties then gives you Bible verses that talk about that good order for all these categories. For those of us who are sent to preach, for you out there who are sent to hear for what civil government is, for what a citizenship is, for what a husband is, what a wife is, what a parent is, what a child is, what a worker of any kind is. It's got youth, it's got widows, and it's got, well, in general, we should all listen to Romans 13, 9, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Now, two things here. First, next page, Christian questions and their answers for those who wish to go to the sacrament. Have the last section of the small catechism there. But then why all the deal about the table of duties? Okay, you, you can put your hymnal down and pick up your pew Bible now and find your way to Colossians chapter 4 on page 985. Though we'll be starting in chapter 3 verse 18 on 984. But the reason for all the hubbub about the table of duties is because while Dr. Luther's table of duties, his listing of various verses about where we stand and what we should do when we stand there as Christians in this age, this is great, but there's actually tables of duties that already exist put together in the Bible for you. Now, Luther's is the Bible, is verses of the Bible that he pulled out for you to see. That's fine, but the Bible has its own in big chunks. And the two most common or or strong places to see this are Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 and Colossians chapter 3 and 4. 
interesting how the translators and those who put the verse numbers in, the monks who put the verse numbers in, didn't really get the section break quite right in both of these sections. Uh, they, they maybe should have extended the chapter so it ended with the end of the table of duties, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Uh, both of these tables of duties will talk about three different categories under which everything else kind of falls. They talk about the relationship between husbands and wives. They talk about the relationship between parents and children. And they talk about the relationship between, in the language of the ancient world, slaves and masters, which is doubly hard for us to hear and understand. It would be better, I think, just to translate it as workers and masters, because slavery in the ancient world was not unlike having to get up at 6 a.m. and drive for a three-hour commute to make your mortgage payment. I mean, you don't have a choice, right? Like, you're not free. You can't just up and go. So that's how it was then. So masters and workers, bosses and workers, if you prefer. But these three categories do kind of subsume everything else that exists in our relationships in life, right? Okay, so uh, Ephesians chapter 5 Colossians chapter 3, there's another place that gets into this, but it only talks about husbands and wives. That's 1 Peter chapter 3. Paul will talk about similar things in 1 Timothy 2 and in Titus 2 and in 1 Timothy 5, but we're not going to go everywhere there today. Today, what I want to do is look at Colossians chapter 3's text and then jump from it to Ephesians 5 because it gets a little wider there. And then come back and we'll finish out the back end of Colossians chapter 4, which most of it's going to be a list of names and people and historical events that Paul is connected to. So if you, if you start looking at the clock and saying, well, how's he going to do this? this is, the last part's not going to take us as long as, as the first part's going to take. But we definitely want to give some attention to chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. In fact, maybe we'll just start there before we go any further. So look at chapter 4, verse 5, where it says, walk in wisdom. That's, that's what this is about. The table of duties is about walking in wisdom. To be wise is to not only know, I can add two plus two, so I'm smart now, right? It's, it's not just that, it's to be able to see with what you know. I gave you $5 for that, it cost three bucks, you gave me one buck back. Ah, oh, I see what you're doing there, okay? That's to use the knowledge in a wise way, to perceive, that's another way to think of, of wisdom, right? Walk in wisdom. Paul has throughout Colossians been saying wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. And he's also said, walk, walk, walk. Now the walking, everybody does. The wise man and the fool both walk. The fool, he goes off the road, falls into a pit. The wise man, he stays on the straight road. He turns aside neither to the right to the left. So the Christian walk then is to walk with the wisdom of your faith in Christ as the way by which you decide what to do. Right? So you know, you see, you do. You have a discipline that comes out of the wisdom that God has given. Paul has been driving at that through this entire book, and let's not miss it. That the chief and highest and greatest wisdom is not what a man is, what a woman is. Although that's pretty important. But the chief and highest, greatest wisdom is he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. All the debts, all the burdens... All the failures, all the sins, all the grievances, all the hatreds, all the malice, all the lies, he nailed it to the cross. And the great wisdom of God was that he would die for his people, even though his people despised him. And by doing that, he would make for himself a people out of those who were not his people. 
And that they, regenerated, literally raised from the dead, their trespasses and sins forgiven and buried in him, would walk in a newness of life that is light and life and salvation and everlasting bliss. That is the greatest wisdom of all. It's what allows you, as a Christian, to have stuff go wrong in this world and shrug and say, you know what? That's this world. But I'm walking through this veil of tears, this wasteland of darkness, to a world that will not have that happen. The scoffer will cease. Those who seek out evil, they will be put away. And even those who murmur, they're going to stop. They're going to understand once they get there. Yeah. So again, walking in wisdom, walking with the knowledge of your faith as the way that you see. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. This especially means, know there's a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Know there's a difference between someone who believes the Bible and someone who does not believe the Bible. There's going to be a difference in how you see. And if the Bible is any explanation of this, they're not going to like you when you don't see the way they do. You're going to be what Paul calls the stench of death to them. They won't like that you're justified by grace and not too worried about it. They're so busy justifying themselves by what they've done, stacking up idols to prove to themselves they're good enough that when you don't really care too much for their idol, they're offended by it. So you need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, which first and foremost means don't let them change who you are. One of the great lies that has gotten into the churches in the last hundred years is the idea that if we don't change to look more like the culture, then no one will come to church anymore. That's so backwards. And that's all done in the name of mission. Who's going to want to follow you if you change to to bow down before their petty quibbling. Well, I don't like the organ, so I won't come to church. Really? Like, really? I mean, I don't like the organ. I go to church. Sorry, Caleb. But I, I mean, I really, it's not my favorite thing. I don't listen to organ in the car. I don't put it on. But that's your reasoning? So, oh, we'll, we'll change it to rock and roll. Then they'll come to church and really believe. No, they won't. They'll come for the rock and roll. Whatever you catch them with, you got to keep them with. That's key. Huh? So walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Don't change who you are for them. Be who you are in such a valuable way that they want to be like you. St. Paul, you've been doing this as you've been praying the Psalms and reading the Proverbs and opening up your Bible at home and taking notes during sermons and going back and looking at them later. That is precisely why we are as, can I say, united and healthily growing as we are. Because the scripture, the word of God is dwelling richly among us. So let's continue. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Super imperative verse there. It also is repeated in Ephesians chapter 4, right before the table of duties in chapter 5. Making the best use of the time. This isn't about productivity. It's not about profiteering. It's not about cheating the system. Again, it's about not wasting your life on things that don't matter. One of my good friends, Dr. Adam Kuntz, tells a story from a book he read about a a man who was at the top of his career in his 50s. He was an Episcopal bishop and priest, and uh, he traveled all over the place. This is like 1940s, 1920s. He's traveling everywhere, speaking everywhere. Everybody wants a piece of this guy. He's got like a chair at an Ivy League school. He's never going to lose his job. And he's, he's traveling home on a train one Saturday night, having 
gone out and, and spoken somewhere else. And he's passing by house after house with the lights on. And he can see families inside. He starts to feel like he's missing something. And he is. He's missing his family. Things that are valuable are things the world considers not consequential. And the world would go out and give you all manner of plastic and sugar in order to get you to think you're making it. Here's some metal. Here's some paper. Wow, I feel special now. But all these things perish with their use. Yeah? And so to make the best use of the time is to use these earthly treasures where you have them for the sake of the heavenly reality you're walking toward. It's not as though if you put more in the plate to get a bigger house in heaven. That's a bunch of nonsense. It's more like if you understand how limited these things are, they won't rule over your psyche and your conscience all the time. You'll walk about right now as a free person. No longer judging yourself based upon how rich you are, the quality of clothing you have, or maybe even how good you are at this, that, or the other thing. You can walk instead as a child of the light, as a son of the living God, redeemed again by the blood. Yes? All right. Walk in wisdom. So this means then, walking in wisdom is to see how things really are, and the table of duties is going to tell us how authority really is. All right, so let's just look at the first verse and then I'll, I'll duck so you can throw tomatoes at me, right? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. How do I even dig into it? There's this thing called the Sons of Solomon. I hope you've heard of it. It's a prayer discipline for men. I began it about two and a half years ago because I believe that we needed a new kind of men's fellowship in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I mean, we're, we're back on the question game. How many of you have heard about the Lutheran Layman's League? Eh, quite a few. Where is it now? Well, they still have a building. They still got a radio show. It's, it's kind of, you know, knobbly knees here a little bit, though. Uh, so, so I believe we needed men to get together somehow. I thought, well, why don't we just get everyone to pray a couple of psalms every day? Maybe that'll start it. And it's gone amazingly well. You can pick up one of the packets out there. I highly encourage you to consider it. Um, one of the first things that happened after I announced this on my YouTube show, how many of you know I do a YouTube show? How many of you know Meredith's on it? Meredith's on it every week, Saturday morning. You should join us sometime. Um, I announced it on the YouTube show. One of the first things that happens was, I say, here's this thing for men to get men together. And the question is, well, what about the women? Really? What about the women? Aren't you okay? Aren't you doing okay? Aren't you, aren't you, don't you have a ladies group at church? Actually, we do. <laughs> right, we do. Uh, so like, like, what about the women? But this is, this is the problem. That we live in a time of the wind of the Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, where you can't do anything for the men without the women trying to break in. And men, we've let them, which is actually our problem. All right? Now, what am I trying to get at here? I'm trying to get at the idea that we have been coached and trained and programmed to think that if women aren't involved the same exact way that men are, then that's evil. And this is the bitter root that has sprung up and done all manner of damage to our society so that today there are doctors 
who parents are paying to mutilate their children in the name of them being not what they are. So if you're bothered by that, which you should be, then you have to see that this is where it started. When we decided as a people that wives don't need to submit to their husbands, or maybe this, again, nonsensical, it's mutual submission. You'll both submit to each other. There'll be no head on the body. That this was when we went off the rails. And that everything else that has followed has been a result of that going off of the rails. Now, let me tell you another story. I don't waste too much time on it. But look, I came out of college a full-fledged liberal. I really was. I believed in women pastors. All right? Does that give me enough cred? I thought women should be pastors. I even had developed an argument for how the Bible could still be inerrant if only we had women, or, and we could have women pastors. And that was that the Bible was inerrantly mistaken. Yeah? The parts that Paul said about not having women teach or have authority over a man in the congregation, well, that was there for us to learn to see that even Paul could make a mistake. And that's why it was without error. We're supposed to learn even Paul can make a mistake. Even Paul can be trapped by the wind of his society and not see more than what his culture told him to see. I met a young woman who said to me, don't you just say that because you can't see more than what your culture tells you to see? And I was kind of struck to the heart. It's like, I guess I do. And then I started to go back to these texts that I didn't like, just like most people don't like them. I went back to these texts I didn't like. I started asking a different question. The question I'd asked had had always been, um, how can I get around this? How can this be wrong and kind of okay at the same time? And the new question I began to ask is, how can this be good? Not like, like how, but like how? Like, Lord Jesus, can you show me what this really means? Since I'm going to now believe that you're God, you're good, you're without error, and you designed it all, you must know what you're talking about. Since I think it's wrong, I must be wrong. How can I see how it's good? Huh? And a big part of the answer to this, again, I don't want to go too far afield here, but a huge part of the answer to this is the fact that we think submission is bad is the problem. Period. Forget man and woman for a second, right? The idea that submit to means you suck is really a lie. And the proof of this is Jesus on the cross. Because what's he do on the cross? He's submitting to the will of his father. Did he want to? Someone answered. Did he want to? No, he did not. But he did it anyway. Why? Because he trusted his father. Wives, submit to your husband. It means wives, trust your husband. Hey, wives, when you don't submit to your husband, you know what you're not doing? You're not trusting him. How do you think that's going to impact him when he knows you don't trust him? I'll tell you what, it's going to make him a coward what it's going to do. If he's afraid of you, he's going to be afraid of the world. Now, what good is a man to a woman if he's afraid of the world? So again, Christ is the picture here. And was Christ made perfect through weakness? Yes. But at a certain point, is Christ on the cross weak? I mean, physically, yes, he's weak. Is he weak in willpower and spirit at that moment? I don't think so. To walk willingly past that betraying kiss of Judas? 
and let them, when he could call with the word, angels upon angels to rescue him, to let them nail him to the cross. Again, don't get me wrong, there's a weakness in his physical flesh at that moment, but his will is not weak at that moment. His will is supersedingly strong, supernaturally strong. I, I would that I could have a taste of that kind of confidence. Yeah? So don't believe for a moment that submit to means you suck, you're weak, you can't. Think of it as instead as you get to follow someone who is good. And that is what it means, wives, submit to your husbands. It's wives, God gave you your husband. He's a Christian, right? He reads his Bible, right? Well, then he's a good man, right? He wants to do the right thing, right? Well, then follow him. And part of this is about respecting him. Seeing that what he needs more than anything else is not to be ashamed in front of other people, including you. And every time you say, well, why didn't you do it that way? Guess what he gets a big, big dose of? Big dose of shame. And what's he going to do? He's going to try to justify himself. And when he does that, how's he going to act? Harshly? You see how it all kind of comes together? So when it says, husbands, do not be harsh with your wives, it's just the other side of the same coin. Right? But at first it says, husbands, love your wives. And here's where we just got to jump to Ephesians 5 for a moment. So um, hold your spot at, uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verse, uh, uh, verse 20, and come to Ephesians chapter 5, page 978 of your Bible. And you're going to see this same section, the same idea, but expanded quite a bit, right? Verse 22 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. See, it's not just my idea that it's about Jesus. Paul's idea is this is about Jesus. Jesus is the head of us. And so just as we are the bride of Christ, so you who are brides according to the flesh, act like we do toward Jesus. Yeah? Because he is the head of his body and as himself the Savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But now then, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Again, check out the cross. That's how Christ loved the church. Husbands, do that for your wives. I tell you, who's got the rougher deal? Follow or die? I mean, which one's rougher? Sounds like die to me. It's the higher bar. It's the harder toil and labor. And that's what we're made for. That's, uh, I hope this makes sense. That's why we have those stubborn, hard heads that don't always listen and don't get through. It's so that we will go through for you. And not stop when the world tells us to stop doing the right thing. The issue is there's just not enough good men, right? We need good men to be stubborn about being good. But that's why we're here. That's what we're reading about. That's who Christ has called us to be, made us to be, redeemed us to be. You're already righteous in his sight. Now you get to practice it. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, that means set apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and hard not to see baptism there, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
you throw out wives submit to your husbands, you got to throw that out too. They're built together. They're entwined together. In the same way as Christ loves the church and saves us, so husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. He quotes Moses here and Jesus. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I guess before you go further, just skim down and see that the next section, chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents. Then it's going to get to, in verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. That's going to be right there when we look back at Colossians chapter 3 and 4. Turn there now. Back to page 984. So right after verse 19 of chapter 3, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, I I really want you to see that this isn't about the battle of the sexes. This is about authority being a good thing. That authority is given by God to man Not for himself, but for whoever is under him. So it's given by God to Adam for Eve and Cain and Abel. It's given by God to Adam to give to Eve for Cain and Abel. It's given by God to Adam to give to Seth for Seth's children. Authority is always not for the one who has it, but for the one who is under it. You're given a son to care for the son, not to take advantage of him. We live in a world where many who have authority take advantage of the authority. That's the problem. Not so with us, though, or at least that's the call. We are to be different. In this way, then, children, it says, obey your parents in everything, even when they're wrong, especially when they're wrong. What kind of value and will and strength and courage does it take to obey somebody who's right? I'm not telling you when they tell you to do evil, then you definitely want to disobey them. If your parent says, go have an abortion, no, two wrongs don't make a right. But if it's something like you need to be home by 10 o'clock tonight, and you know that's not fair because your younger sister got to be out till 11 o'clock the other night, and this is not fair, it's wrong. So what? So what? The power of obedience is in being able to do it when you disagree. Being able to follow one who you trust because you trust them. Not because you see everything they see. Yeah? Fathers, next verse, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Parents, it's not about what you want, right? And and this is definitely a challenge with the world of parenting today. There is an absolute Darth of parenting knowledge in our society. All you got to do is go out to dinner and you will see it. You will see these kids just behaving in radically bizarre ways, unable to, to even like have a sentence by age 10. It's, it's incredible. They're animals. And it's like they're being trained to be animals. So there's definitely an issue here. Yeah. But for us Christians, then it begins with recognizing that we are given our children not to be their friends, not to have them like us, 
not to have them be entertaining, not to have them live out all the dreams we couldn't fulfill. We are given them in order to give them back to Jesus. We are given them in order to raise them in the faith once for all delivered to the saints that, you ready? He is risen. Hallelujah. We are given to raise them in the fear and admonition of Jesus Christ. Which means that if you provoke them needlessly, if it's always just anger and you should and you ought to, and there never is love and mercy and forgiveness, well then they're going to they're gonna stop listening at a certain point, right? So fathers, don't do that. See the good in your child and cause it to flourish. Verse 22, bond servants, again, remember this is just workers, workers, yeah? I mean, I like the bond servant, by the way, as a translation, like it could be slaves. But, I mean, you ever think about this? Like, I remember in like, grade school and high school, having them talk about indentured servitude. Do you remember this? Like, there were the slaves who they captured in the slave trade, but that was only like some of them. Then there were the indentured servants. These were the Europeans who sold themselves into debt for passage across the ocean. So they'd get over here, and they would have to work like a slave and live like a slave, but there was an end date to it, like seven years or 10 years or what have you there. Okay, so you know what a mortgage is, right? It's indentured servitude. And I'm not saying it's sin or it's wrong or you shouldn't have one. I just want you to see that bond service is pretty right. None of us are as free as we think we are, not in our community. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, right? Same idea that if you have someone who's over you, strive to do good under them. It's going to say more about that here with verse, uh, uh, rest of verse 22. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Hmm? So you're not just trying to look like you're doing a good job. You're not trying to trick your employer into thinking you're doing a good job. The idea is to do the best possible job that you can do. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So this is kind of the key. All authority is actually from God first. And so when you do submit to an authority, you're doing it because you're submitting to God. It's not about whether your father or your mother are right. It's about the fact that God gave you them and God would have you follow them. Now, because I know this is a problem, I'm going to tangent here. Look, when you've grown up and left the house, you don't have to obey your parents anymore. I really mean this. Like this has been used to just brutalize people's consciences. Once you have your own home, once you are in charge of your own household, you should still respect your parents as your parents, but there's a change in that relationship. If they tell you, you'd better do this, you don't have to, especially if it's going to harm the ones under you that you're supposed to be taken care of. So, so just as an aside there, I suppose, whatever you do work heartily as for Jesus See that you have a heavenly master who desires you to be here still. He hasn't let you die yet. He hasn't taken you away yet. He desires you to be here, to do something. You will know what that thing is based on your relationship with other people. 
in those relationships with other people, do the best good that you can do. Knowing that, verse 24, from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. That means salvation. That means he's already bought you with a price. That means that you already have all things to be given to you on the last day. So give this life to service where you are and believe it'll work out even if it all turns to sand. Because again, it, it will. It will. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now verse 25 is interesting here. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. What does that mean? Does that mean that on judgment day, you might get paid back for the evil that you did? No, no, I don't think so. What it means is that if you're going to be ruthless and cruel and disobedient in this life, it's going to blow back on you. You're going to find it happen. I mean, you don't believe me. Just go drive 95 miles an hour on the 90 down to Chicago. Just all the way. Don't 90 miles an hour the whole way. I'll show you. You, know, there, you will be paid back. The, the law, judgment, has a way of bringing its own punishment on you. So this is why wives should follow their husbands and husbands should protect their wives. Why children should listen to their parents and parents should strive to build them up and not tear them down. is because if we don't, we'll go off and all do whatever we want to do and it will collapse. And again, just let that sink in for the broader picture here. Yeah? There is no partiality with God. Bad scales, dishonest scales fall over eventually. That's there to scare us a little bit. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you have authority over somebody, remember that you too are a slave to Jesus. And whoever you've been given authority over for, it is for them, not for you. Uh, if you want to fix the American economy like this, it won't happen, but it's like this. It has to stop being about profits and start being about providing good jobs. Jobs that are worth doing. Jobs that give you a living. Jobs that build up families and communities. But see, that's not what the bottom line's about. No. That, that's the issue. That's where the idol is. Verse 2 of chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. It just means, open your Psalter again. Read it out loud in the name of Jesus. Believe it's about you. Do you have something on your heart that's really bothering you specifically? We'll say you want it to Jesus. Say, Jesus, please, give me this. Jesus, I can't take this anymore. Jesus, give me the strength to endure this. Yeah. Continue in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Again, so as you watch the world that's going to create the anxiety, what should you do with the anxiety? Pray. Pray, turn away from the fear and toward the Lord who is God and King of all. At the same time, verse three, pray also for us. And this is about Paul and those who are with him as he's on his missionary journeys. But when you see this, when you read texts like this, you want to think about your pastors. Yeah, not only myself and Pastor Cyprus, not only the pastors on the roster of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but all Christian preachers in the world. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That's that he's inside of you. Remember that to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He says, verse four, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Notice the fear. He's concerned 
that he'll stumble. He's concerned that he'll back down, that in some moment he won't say what needs to be said. And so he says, pray for me that I'll be strong in the word and say what needs to be said. And I ask you, my friends, please, please pray for me for this, that I would not shut my mouth when I should open it. And that when I open it, I would have the right words for you and for everyone else who would hear. And again, don't just pray for me. Pray for the churches in America. Pray for the churches in the world. There's a darth, an emptiness, a famine of good teaching and preaching right now. Well, we've got to ask for it if we want it back. Ask the Lord to send laborers into the harvest field. Now we get to our verse. We started with walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Just to believe everything we've covered. Yeah? Making the best use of the time to do everything we've covered. Let your speech always be gracious. That's just another way of saying, you know, be patient, have mercy. Let your speech always be gracious. I tell you, when you're angry, is your speech gracious? Gracious? No, right? No. You know what happens when you get angry? This is fun. When you get angry, your body prepares to either fight or run from a tiger or something that's going to chase you. So when your body's like, I have to fight or run away, what it does is it takes all your blood that your lungs are filling up with oxygen and it sends it to your muscles and your arms and your legs, which means it takes all the blood that was previously in your brain away from your brain. I'm not, I mean, this, is, this is the way it is. It's for reals, right? Not a joke. And so again, when you're angry, what's, what's the best thing to do when you're angry? Shut your mouth. And you can take a deep breath. You can do some other things. Try, just stop talking, right? Because you will not have your mouth be gracious at that point. Seasoned with salt. Uh, we talked about this a little in the, in the previous service, how valuable salt is. Now, if you're eating nothing but boxed food, you probably have too much salt in your diet. This is true. Back before boxed food, you needed adding salt to your diet. It's like one of the only things you can't produce from the other foods you eat, right? A lot of things you can turn into other things. Salt, not so much. You need it to function on a whole number of levels. And one of my favorite stories, it was mind-blowing to me when I learned that back in like the 40s, you'd have the kids out playing football during Hell Week, and they're all super hot, and they start cramping up. And they come out with tablets of salt and make them just swallow salt. Huh? Because they weren't eating, you know, boxed food the way we are. So salt is there because it's good. It's a purifying agent. It's a cleaning agent. It also, in the ancient world, was a sign of peace. So if someone came into your house, this is, this is Hebrews, the Jews. Uh, if someone came into your house, you would welcome them with bread and salt. And this would be a sign that you would treat them like a member of the household until they left. There would be no lying, stealing, cheating, killing going on. Bread and salt. So when he says, let your speech be seasoned with salt, what he's talking about, again, is to have purifying hospitality, charity, peace, and commitment in your mouth. Yeah? So that you may know how to answer each person. All right. I told you to get close at the end here. Uh, the last uh, 15 verses or so is a lot of hellos and hows are you doings. Tychicus, he says in verse 7, will tell you about my activities. Probably the guy who carried the letter. All right? So you want to know about how Paul's elbow is doing. Tychicus knows. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Sounds like he was a preacher. 
I have sent him to you for this very purpose. That is to tell you about the rest of my life rather than the dogma I've given you in the book to tell you about how I'm doing. That you may know how we are. Notice Paul's got people with him in Rome, probably in Rome. Uh, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onin Onesimus. Ooh, that guy's mentioned in the book of Philemon, which probably traveled with this book and with the book of Ephesians and possibly the book of Laodiceans, which we don't have a copy of because it fell away, uh, all by this guy, Tychicus. Onesimus was a runaway slave going back to his master as a Christian to apologize for running away. It's quite a story. Uh, he is our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. He became a Christian after he ran away. Yeah? They will tell you of everything that has taken place here that is in Rome with Paul. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Mark's John Mark, who traveled with Paul for a while, then fled uh, back to Judea. And then Paul didn't want to travel with him anymore. And Barnabas takes him with him. Well, now they're all together. They're all back together in Rome. Uh, concerning whom, he says, you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Yeah. And Jesus, who is called Justice, don't know much about that guy at all. These are the only men of the circumcision, that is, they're Jews, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So most of Paul's group that's with him are Greeks, not Jews. That's what that means. And they have been a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, probably the guy who planted the church. Uh, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He's not there with them anymore. He's in Rome where Paul is. He says, hello. Always struggling on your behalf and his prayers. Notice how prayer and struggle go together. He's praying what? That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. It's a good prayer. Verse 13, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Remember, Ephesians is the big city, Laodicea, Colossa, Hierapolis, they're the suburbs. Chicago, Rockford, and Aurora. Kind of think of it like that a little bit, although much smaller, much smaller. Luke Verse 14, the beloved physician greets you as does Demas. So we know who Luke is. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So there's where you get that there is a letter to the Laodiceans. We just don't have a copy of it anymore. And if the question is why, the answer is because it isn't scripture. I don't know. God decided to have it get lost. So we have the one from Colossae, but we know Paul wrote to Laodicea. And it says, verse 17, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Good chance that that's the pastor of the church in Colossae. And he's telling him to be a faithful pastor. And then he does this in many of his books. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Back in the day, paper was expensive. Fitting lots of words on one sheet was hard. So you had professional people who did that. Yeah, like printers are today a little bit. And so you'd pay someone to write. And so that's what Paul did. He had someone else write the letter. And at the very end, he can write. It's just got big letters. And so he signed it with his own hand. He says, remember my chains. Grace be with you. That brings us through the book of Colossians. And we are definitely past time. So I'm going to uh, forego any other conclusion than to remind you, remind you, remind you that the wisdom is that he nailed it to the cross 
that as a bride should desire to follow her husband to the ends of the earth, so we follow our husband Christ through this valley of shadow and into a world that will never end. In Jesus' name, amen.